I think a materialist approach to things is very, very consistent with uh, my experience in Christian social justice. I feel like the, the deeper I get into anarchist practice, the deeper my faith is getting at the same time. I would hope that you know, securing means of life for all would be something all people of faith would say, oh yes, that's at the basis of what we believe. Those who are most marginalized know the most about the truth, good and the beautiful. To me, it's less that I think building class solidarity is a bad thing, as much as it seems like if you don't attend to things like anti-black racism, um, that's always going to get in the way of building class solidarity, actually. And when you go back, you find that a lot of uh, revolutionary grassroots participatory movements, the, the precursors to what you could call um, the barrio assemblies and these like, you know, grassroots neighborhood organizations, a lot of these were sponsored by the church. What does it mean to say that the Christian tradition is internally contradictory and there are antagonisms there? Um, you're always uh, being faithful to some aspects and betraying other aspects. Welcome to the Magnificast, a podcast about Christianity and leftist politics. I'm Dean Detloff. And I'm Matt Bernico. And this week, you've all been thinking about it. You've all been seeing it in the news. You've been asking about it. Uh, we are talking about Cuba, what's been going on there this month. And we have back with us our uh, routine guest correspondent on all things Latin America and the Caribbean, Jim Hodgson. Uh, it's a really exciting interview. We really appreciate Jim and uh, the kind of experience and history that he brings to these kinds of issues. So hopefully it will... Uh, Make a little more sense uh, what's happening in the country, what Cuba means to the history of the Christian left and what uh, Christianity in Cuba looks like. Yeah, it's a really cool conversation. Um, Jim, as always, kind of illuminates um, some of the important ins and outs of, uh, you know, the ways that Christians have responded to the Cuban revolution. So it's, it's definitely worth listening to um, and uh, learning a lot from. And you know what? After you're done listening to this, you should go and uh, just do a quick Google and see what your own church or denomination has said about the uh, the recent uh, events in Cuba. And um, I don't know, figure out what they're saying. It'd be interesting to know. Uh, maybe it's bad. I have no idea. <laughs> but uh, definitely worth finding out. Okay, well, let's find out some more with Jim right now. Welcome back to the show, Jim. We're really glad to hear again from our uh, unofficial podcast correspondent on uh, Latin America and the Caribbean. Uh, for folks who are new to the podcast, we always call up Jim when something is going on in those parts of the world. And uh, he has a lot of uh, firsthand solidarity experience in the wild world of Christianity and social justice over uh, a few decades. So, Jim, why don't you, before we get into talking about what's going on in, in Cuba and, and whatever else, why don't you just uh, introduce yourself a little bit for folks who don't know who you are? Sure. It's great to be back with you today. And uh, I'm talking with you today from my hometown in British Columbia. I have come back here for a visit with family. Um, I grew up here, but was always curious about the rest of the world and particularly in, in uh, uh, all those issues around uh, north-south uh, development, injustice, inequity, uh, trying to find a better way forward. And so I, um, my background is in journalism, and I kind of found a career over the past uh, almost 40 years at the intersection of um, journalism, um, progressive church spaces, and uh, Latin America and the Caribbean. And so um, I got involved in Latin America directly uh, with the travel in um, the Dominican Republic, Haiti, and Nicaragua, and 1983, 84, and then I've, I've kind of stuck with it. So, um, and to, today we're, and, and I guess I should say as well, I worked for 20 years with the United Church of Canada as its uh, uh, Latin America Caribbean program coordinator, but I finished that job a year ago. And um, so what I say today is, uh, you know, rooted in my experience, some of which is derived through the relationships with the United Church, but I'm not speaking on their behalf today. Um, this is This is Jim. <laughs> <laughs> Great. Well, we're really excited just to have Jim um, <laughs> specifically talking about your, your experience. It's great. So, um, I mean, I think every time you come on the podcast, you teach us something new and important about, um, you know, international relations, solidarity and history. Uh, but today we're really excited to talk about Cuba, I think particularly just because of the recent events. Um, it's a place that we know you have some experience and some relationships, though, as well. Um, so th there's there's a lot of... 
there's a lot of history behind all of the things going on in Cuba and um, uh, just a big knot to unravel, I guess, uh, was what I'm trying to say. So we thought we could maybe discuss some of the current events up front and then find our way to maybe the historical situation in the in the back half of the episode. So I guess let's just start with the basics. Um, Jim, what's going on in Cuba this month? Yeah, um, I, I think thanks thanks for the question and and uh you know you can if you look on online or at any of the major media places like bbc or cbc or or the us networks you you you'd think that uh you know there's this uh, full scale revolt going on in, in cuba and that's that's not true um you know just to step back from it a little bit and then i'll, I'll move forward again um the uh Cuba, like other countries, has had to manage the COVID-19 pandemic um, as best it can. And uh, I think if you look around the world at countries that we're interested in or passionate about, um, each of them have done things uh, in different ways, sometimes for the good of the people and sometimes not so good. Um, and, and, you know, so you can look at how, how Cuba has managed this and uh, you know, say, well, this was good and that wasn't so good and have a t- conversation about that. So um, so COVID happens in, in the Cuban situation in the context of uh, 60 years of uh, uh, US, a US-led blockade, um, not supported by any other country in the world right now except Israel. But, um, but yeah, there's this blockade which doesn't prevent Cuba absolutely from obtaining goods and services. Um, they can get them from other places, but it, it takes out kind of a major potential supplier and drives prices higher. And, uh, you know, and, and you're competing in, in basically smaller markets to get goods like um, face masks, uh, other PPE. Um, early on in the uh, in the um, COVID crisis and, and, and then so you have the blockade difficulty in getting medical supplies, uh, basic other basic products that that's been going on, uh, especially accentuated through the through the pandemic. Um, but the pandemic has also meant the loss of a major source of income, the the loss of tourism. Um, the, the pandemic began just after uh, some economic reforms that that uh, an old dual currency uh, system ended and. Uh, so people were adjusting to that, and um, and it has meant some inflation. There, there, there's a crisis in Venezuela, also brought on by the United States, that has meant uh, it's harder to get uh, oil, which is the major um, ingredient to producing electricity in Cuba, unfortunately. And uh, so, so you know, there are shortages of electricity, there are shortages of food, shortages of medication. Um, at the same time, Cuba has been able to. Uh, uh, developed two um, vaccines that, um, that that you know by all accounts seem to be working, and uh, uh, but there are occasional outbreaks in certain places. So one of those was happening earlier this month in the province of Matanzas, which is just east of Havana. It's where Varadero, the the big beach resort, is, and and some fairly major cities like uh, Matanzas itself, the capital of the state and uh, the province rather and uh, Cardenas, and those are places that I know uh, because well, the major ecumenical seminary for Protestant churches anyways in Matanzas, and there's a really creative uh, 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 center that does research um, yeah, on agriculture and training in, in agricultural methods and uh, promotes dialogue, and that's located in Cardenas. So those are, so, you know, hearing about the the pandemic and its impact on Matanzas was worrisome. Then on July 11th, um, Sunday, July 11th, apparently, uh, spontaneously, uh, these uh, demonstrations began in different places at exactly the same time. Uh, but, you know, in, in a way, I, and I think that the, the churches have, have tried to name this in their declarations about it all, um, that they've tried people were naming their discontent with those those issues, um, the way COVID has been managed, the, the the situation of the economy, and then other issues like internet access and so on that, that uh, um, you know, the internet itself is, is uh, subject to the blockade, you know, most, most uh, information does flow one way or another through the United States or its its grids. Uh, so the, the internet and the way it functions in Cuba uh, has to 
work outside of uh, outside of that. So it, you know, it that's just one of the issues. So so anyway, these these uh, demonstrations happen. Well, why did they happen? Um, partly because of the issues, and and the issues, as I said, are, are real issues and worth talking about. Uh, but you know, responsible dialogue is different from one that's kind of driven by. Um, well, an agenda set elsewhere. And so what do I mean by that? It's that those uh, demonstrations were called for by by people who have another agenda, which is to undermine the, the Cuban state, the Cuban revolution, um, the Communist Party, uh, the popular participation in, in the revolution. Um, you know, just the, the fact that they began at the same time and kind of petered out within a couple of days as, as the energy was lost you know, just just says that the kind of thing that like like what happened in in Nicaragua in uh, 2018, um, where you know some people with uh, good access to to um, to the internet were able to kind of drive an agenda forward at least at least briefly. And uh, um, so so I think that the the way the Cuban government responded was actually quite reasonable. Uh, the, on the day of the demonstrations, the president himself went out and, and met with some of the demonstrators. Um, in the subsequent days, the the government uh, went out of its way to uh, meet with people and then speak publicly um, about the issues that that are affecting uh, Cuba uh, in this this uh, late stage. Well, we hope it's the late stage of the pandemic. And try to find some ways forward, and that includes making it more flexible for people to receive money um, that that comes in from uh, family and friends overseas. So, so we'll see where it all where it all follows. Um, I think that my my hope is that the the kinds of uh, dialogue and the spaces for dialogue um, that that are available that those get used and um, and and the people feel heard uh, with legitimate. Um, complaints, you know. Um, I, I think it's fair that people complain about COVID in every country. You know, it hasn't. Things haven't always gone the way we want them to go, and uh, so um, so have that conversation. Ask questions about the economy. That's that's completely legitimate. And um, I think the the way that we'll we'll talk about this a bit more. But the way that uh, that um, discussion happens in Cuba is, is pretty, I think, wide open. Um, and, and you'll see that um, in the ways the debates go on about uh, religion and politics and issues like uh, same-sex marriage and so on. So there, there, those, there are spaces for dialogue, responsible dialogue. And uh, um, I think that's, that's been unfolding these past few weeks. I really appreciate you bringing out that, that nuance and how the dialogue is unfolding and, and the space that maybe, you know, the space that there is for that dialogue in Cuba, something I've been seeing a lot from, I think, critics on the left even um, about the the protests in Cuba is about police violence there. I don't know. Do you have any thoughts about some of those images that people have been circulating online or how how people have talked about police violence and like suppression in Cuba? I don't know. Like, What's what's your uh, take on those things in light of the, I don't know, the, the dialogue or the, the supposed lack thereof? I don't see the, the police violence that so-called so, so police violence in Cuba is at all equivalent to what you see right now, for example, in Colombia, um, where the, the police have been guilty of, of kidnapping and killing people. And uh, uh, so what happened on July 11th was, uh, you know, some, some people went out and demonstrated peacefully, a minority within them uh, weren't so peaceful. Uh, sometimes those people were were arrested. The police do have a responsibility uh, for for maintaining uh, public order. Um, and uh, so one of my friends who was out that day was uh, um, the uh, Joel Suarez, who's the director of the, the Martin Luther King Memorial Center in Havana. And uh, so he he said he walked around and saw the, the different demonstrations, different parts of Havana, and uh, mostly saw that they were peaceful, but there were places where there were agitators who were, who were trying to disturb things. And they, they were the, the ones who, um, whose images were caught on camera and that, that you see kind of played over and over again. But, uh, you know, given, um, given the potential for, uh, or given the occurrences of violence and demonstrations in other places, this seemed rather subdued. So I, I don't, I don't, I don't even think it was, a. 
I don't feel like it was a major issue. Um, it's it's not like uh, what you saw in the Black Lives Matter protests in the states a year ago, or or the uh, or what you see in Colombia right now. Yeah, I think that's some really good context. Uh, you know, we're uh, I'm talking to you from Toronto, where just this week uh, police were beating people um, in events trying to stop them from evicting uh, homeless encampments in the parks. So <laughs> it's a uh, you know it's a uh, police violence is is not good. Obviously, everyone prefers that it doesn't happen, but uh, that that scene is not uh, played around the world either, with all kinds of condemnations from world leaders and so on and so forth. So. Mm-hmm. Um, Anyway, yeah, uh, helpful to have that that context. Um, maybe you could talk to us a little bit more about uh, that participatory aspect of democracy in Cuba and those channels that that room for dissent or dialogue for raising complaints and so on. I mean, what are your impressions of that picture of Cuba? What is it like to have a, a conversation? Um, what's the sort of extent, maybe as far as you know, of um, people's disagreements, you know, with uh, the government or, or internal to the government and so on. What's the, the kind of picture of Cuba behind those assumptions that it's sort of uh, an authoritarian, you know, one party line kind of place? Yeah, so uh, the Cuban Revolution, of course, as you know, triumphed back in 1959. Um, it uh, uh, it be, be, it eventually emerged as a single-party state, um, with uh, the single party being the Communist Party of Cuba. Uh, the the way that since 1975 um, democracy unfolds is is through uh, different levels of of engagement. So one is the um, neighborhood assemblies, um, and that's kind of the principal space that that a lot of people participate in actual political governance. So there um neighborhood um, assemblies there are municipal assemblies there's a provincial assembly and there's the national assembly of people's power it's called uh which is cuba's parliament and so and there's also these other systems for popular participation through trade unions through the women's organizations um, the farmers organizations and so on so all of those are spaces where uh political debate unfolds it also unfolds outside of those spaces. So in the, the space that I know best is the churches. So people come together uh, for worship or for uh, you know church meetings, but there's always, as, as churches are, there's always discussion about what's going on in the country. What are the social issues relevant to churches? And I think in the past few years, it's been really interesting to see how the, the debate has unfolded in Cuba around uh, around marriage, and particularly expanding the definition of marriage to include uh, partners of the same sex. So back in 1975, when they developed uh, the new the new then new constitution, they defined marriage as the in a state between men and women, or between a man and a woman. And uh, uh, as uh, I guess public consciousness has evolved, not just in Cuba but around the world around uh, issues fa- facing LGBT people, um, the, the Cuban leadership began to feel, well, we, we need to change that. So one of the people who was driving the, the change um, to, to, to open opportunities for, for sexual minorities was Mariela Castro. Uh, Mariela is the daughter of Raul Castro, who was the president through the past decade or so not now. Um, and her mother was Vilma Espin, who was the founder of the uh, the women's um, organization, the National Women's Organization in um, in Cuba, uh, very influential um, in the 60s and 70s, uh, unfortunately, since passed away. Um, so Mar- um, Mariela came to the debate on uh, same-sex marriage, and I think everybody thought, well, this should be a, a shoe, and the president's daughter is speaking for it. But what happened was a very open public debate. And, and I'm, I'm talking about this because it's an example of the way that the churches have participated in debate. Now, I don't agree with the position that many of the churches have taken, of course. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm gay myself, and I've uh, been very grateful for uh, the public stances of some churches in, in favor of same-sex marriage. In Cuba, um, most of the churches have tended to oppose the proposals for marriage equality. And, and so the government uh, was able to change the constitution, but it then left the door open for uh, 
redefinition of marriage in the family code. So that's the debate that's on now. Um, and to my mind, it, it, it unfolds with uh, complete openness um, and, and to some extent too, too much openness. You know, uh, we have laws in Canada right. about hate speech um, and, you know, there's some things you just can't say because uh, it's considered promotion of hatred. Uh, but in, in Cuba, it was my experience that, you know, a church that was close to a major public park in Havana could have these giant loudspeakers out in front of the church. Everybody in the park could hear uh, their views on same-sex marriage. And that was a Methodist church. The Methodist church in Cuba is opposed to same-sex marriage. And the Methodist church um, has become quite conservative even on collaboration with other churches. And so it's become quite anti-ecumenical. Um, but it's, it's not alone. Most of the churches probably agree with it. You know, the, the other churches, the minority of them, uh, Presbyterian, the Federation of Baptists, um, uh, Episcopal Church and a few others have, have been much more nuanced and called for dialogue. But, you know, I just say that the, the, the people who are crying out that there's lack of religious freedom in Cuba is just not true. People are free to gather, free to worship, and the churches are free to speak. Um, and, uh, you know, the same-sex marriage debate that's on now is an example of, of, of uh, how free that uh, public debate is. Um, I hope I hope <laughs> I hope for the sake of LGBT people that we eventually win this struggle and that the, the definition of marriage in the family code does change. Um, but just because somebody disagrees with you doesn't mean that they're repressing your rights. But we had the same argument here uh, when people like me said, you know, we need we need to have uh, marriage equality. Uh, fundamentalists on the other side would say you're repressing our religious freedom. And no, in no way are we repressing your religious freedom. You're still free to gather and worship and uh, preach to your people inside your temples the way you want, but you can't uh, publicly express hatred towards um, towards uh, LGBT people. So anyway, so that's part of what's been going on. That's, that's such a, I mean, first of all, very disheartening to, I guess, hear that uh, there's an anti-LGBTQ movement alive in Cuba. But I mean, be suspected anywhere, I guess. Second, though, I think, man, that is a story that were you to give it <laughs> to, uh, you know, like free speech absolutists in the United States, they would have no idea what to do with that. Um, such a fascinating contradiction. Yeah. Well, speaking of Christians in Cuba, um, t tell us a little bit more about how Christians are reacting to the the protest movement, uh, to, the, to the situation of the last few weeks. I think it's really hard for people to find nuance in that conversation, especially given, I mean, some of the reporting on the topic. Uh, recently, Dean, Dean and I uh, were looking at this article from Christianity Today, um, which is a pretty big publisher, uh, that basically argued that uh, that Christians are all all being persecuted as they resist the government collectively. Uh, but, you know, just as you talked about, that's not quite the case. So I don't know. Um, how can we make sense of, of these... Uh, these like skewed takes or these uh, these dissonance between these stories. Yeah, I, th I think Christianity today is wrong. <laughs> so uh, I'm just disappointed that they would take that kind of view seriously. So okay, so I've I've talked about you know the debate over marriage equality and you know the, the, as a manifestation of religious freedom, if you if you will, um, not a happy one, but anyway. Uh, the, the other things tend to be around uh, issues like uh, freedom to build a new building or um, carry out repairs or what have you on, on an existing building. And so in a socialist society, uh, the common good uh, is placed ahead of the individual good. And so uh, access to building materials um, is, is a bit restricted. Uh, because there are other things that, that may be priorities, hospitals, schools, what have you. Um, so for, for many years, it's been difficult for churches to get uh, materials for, for their buildings. I don't see that as a restriction on religious freedom. I see it as a, 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 a justifiable way of, of ensuring that um, uh, the, the, most, uh, the most necessary sectors are getting attention first. Um, you know, there can be, uh, there are church meetings that take place in people's homes. Um, there are church meetings that take pe place in people in public parks. 
those are um, those are ways. Uh, while you're waiting for building materials, um, you can still have your religious meetings. Uh, but you know, uh, I guess as well, I, I should say that um, through, throughout the um, throughout these sixty. 60 years of or 62 years of, of the revolutionary period, um, pe people have tried to use religion as a way to subvert the, the, the revolution and uh, subvert the government. And uh, that was really clear um, in the during the Bush administration when the Secretary of State at the time, Colin Powell, had a commission on, uh, on future relations with Cuba. And it states quite clearly there that the US government will use religion to undermine uh, the revolution and the Cuban state. And uh, so, 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 the, so standing back from that a bit and looking at the situation, you start to understand why, um, why sometimes uh, people will say that Christians are being persecuted, even if it's not true. It's, there's, there's money uh, to be had from uh, US government sources. For, for that kind of speech in Cuba. And, uh, um, and I think that's been well documented over the past number of years as well, that, uh, that um, the groups like the, the US funded groups like the National Endowment for Democracy uh, find ways to uh, support uh, groups that uh, put forward only the US view of what democracy is and, and uh, have little tolerance for um, other, other ways of um, of uh, running a country, running a government, running a leading, a, leading a, a process of change. Yeah. Well, tell us a little bit more about um, the Christians who are uh, supportive of the revolutionary process um, in their own ways. Uh, you have some experience with them, and how are uh, how are Christians maybe? Um, you know, continuing to engage these events in, in Cuba, what are the Christians that you have relationships with saying about uh, the events on July 11 um, and the kind of continued crisis uh, in the country? Um, what's that voice like? Uh, it's a, it's, it's a, a, a voice of moderation, a voice calling for uh, responsible dialogue. Um, you know, so like the, the the statements that have come from, from the churches, including the Catholic bishops, have, have all been focused on responsible dialogue, you know, uh, you know, the, the, the Catholic bishops express a concern that, that we are moving towards a rigidity and hardening of positions um, that could engender negative responses with unpredictable consequences that would harm us all. So it's kind of, a, I think, a plea for, um, for, you know, lowering the temperatures and finding, finding ways of uh, using the spaces that exist to uh, create uh, opportunities for dialogue, uh, mutual listening, and so on. Um, a few of the statements refer to the uh, the situation with the United States and the economic blockade, um, uh, but but mostly they're they're calling for for responsible dialogue. And I think you know the churches over these sixty two years have learned a few things about how to. How to be, you know, how to be Christians in in a revolutionary situation, and uh, so going back to the beginning, I mean, before the revolution, um, the Catholic Church tended to uh, work mostly with the the wealthier sectors, provide education to the kind of the um, <clears throat> the the more elite parts of the society, and didn't have a whole lot of enga engagement with uh, <coughs> with folks who were who were poor, except kind of um, in a formal way, you know, people would have their babies baptized and uh, they might be married in the church, but probably weren't and uh, might go to the funeral, the church for their funerals and so on. But there was kind of a, you know, distant relationship and the Protestant churches tended to kind of follow the same model. Um, so they were extensions of U.S. churches. They were missionary churches. Um, when the revolution happened, the grassroots were enthusiastically in favor. The leadership was um, tended to be more cautious or even opposed. Um, half of the Presbyterian clergy at the time actually left and went to the states. Um, but those who remained over time um, tried to find ways of, of living with the revolution. So among them were people like 
um, Baptist uh, pastor Raul Suarez, who uh, uh, tried to find create spaces for Christian participation in the revolution. Um, how could Christians uh, be part of what was going on, you know, in the social process? And so he created the Martin Luther King Memorial Center um, in the 70s and 80s. It was a bit later. Uh, other theologians, uh, Presbyterian pastor um, Sergio Arce, uh, began doing kind of theology in the context of the revolution. Um, and so so I think their work and their thinking and, and you know, multiplied, there are others doing this too, um, kind of created a space for for Cubans to be thinking about how they could be Christian in, in the revolutionary context. Uh, at the same time, you know, F Fidel Castro himself was a uh, uh, beneficiary of the, the Catholic Church's way of working before he was educated in a Jesuit school. Um, and he, uh, uh, you know, ultimately the, the, in the 60s and 70s, the, the Cuban state, uh, you know, eventually de declared the, the atheist character of the revolution, but that didn't preclude uh, collaboration with or dialogue with, uh, with Christians and with Christian churches. So anyway, the, um, there was also engagement with uh, Christians from other countries who were curious about what was going on in in Cuba and the revolutionary model that it represented and how that might be useful in other contexts. Um, so there were a number of meetings in the 60s where, where Christians came from other parts of Latin America, um, a trilateral conference uh, in 66 and then this uh, cultural congress in 1968. Um, that actually led to the creation of uh, organizations like Christians for Socialism in Chile in 1971. Um, so, so all of those things were kind of going on at the same time as in other places, you saw the development of liberation theology. So this is all kind of comes together maybe in Cuba in the early 90s where um, there had been enough change in the churches, enough deeper thinking about revolution, a kind of, you know, 30 years of, of distance uh, from um, US ways of being Christians, if I could put it that way. Um, and uh, so by the early 90s, uh, the, the Soviet Union um, uh, came to its end and uh, Cuba was kind of had to break from a, a, a dependent sort of relationship that it had it had had with the Soviet Union, uh, so it became be, began what was called the special period. So the churches and the state found their way back to each other, and uh, what the churches, what the state said to the churches was, um, "How can you be useful to our people in this situation?" Uh, and so that's when the churches, I think, responded really creatively. Um, so like the, that center for um, Reflection and dialogue in Cardenas that I mentioned uh, is a kind of a product of that. The, the number of development projects, uh, agricultural development, health promotion, um, uh, social programs uh, in which the churches uh, began to participate and lead. Um, alternative farming projects, uh, you know, including in the city, uh, in, in the cities. Um, those things began to unfold. and, and uh, so in those years as well, uh, groups like Oxfam Canada and the United Church of Canada worked with the Canadian government to get funding for those sorts of projects through um, the former Canadian International Development Agency since folded into Global Affairs Canada. So, so we were able to use official Canadian development funds for uh, projects in Cuba in, in the 90s and later. Um, so, I mean, the churches found their way towards a, a, a useful relationship with the state. And so there was more and more contact with people outside, including with the churches in the United States, um, Europe, uh, a, a kind of a, an opening too uh, with, the, uh, with, the, with the Vatican that, that allowed for the papal visits to happen and, and so on. So it, so it's you know, it's complicated, and I may have gone a, a bit off track from from your question there, but you know, like I, th I think that the the point is that there are productive relationships um, 
that that developed between um, church spaces and government spaces, the the kinds of um, uh, kind of hinge uh, organizations. So like the center, the Martin Luther King Memorial Center, the Center for Reflection and Dialogue, the the Cuban Council of Churches itself, uh, the Bishops Conference, um, uh, the uh, Felix Varela Center, which is uh, mostly Catholic. Um, th th those are spaces where where people can talk with each other. Um, the seminary in Matanzas uh, has, has, has had, I, I think, a productive relationship with uh, the social movements um, and with the with the party in uh, in the Matanzas province. So, you know, the, so given the 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 good history of the last thirty. Uh, 30 years of, of relationships among Christians and communists and uh, churches and the state um, and uh, understanding that there aren't necessarily the contradictions among them that there there that, that people felt in the 60s and 70s you know you don't want to throw that out the window uh, especially in a moment of tension like right now use those bridges for, for dialogue um, use the spaces that have been created to, uh, uh, you know, uh, fix what's broken and, uh, and uh, hold on to what's good. Yeah, I think that's really helpful, Jim. Um, I appreciate the, the tangent. I think it's a really good one to go on. Um, after some of the events unfolded, I wanted to see what my own, uh, I'm Episcopalian, I want to see what my own church was saying about, about the situation. And uh, I think what you said definitely gave some helpful context to think through, I think, all of the responses I saw from the Episcopal Church in Cuba, even though, uh, I mean, the, their responses, I think, are, are complicated themselves, uh, to say the very least. Well, uh, anyways, maybe we can, we can pivot to talking a little bit more about history um, and, and the backdrop of some of the story. So um, the Cuban Revolution, like you are just alluding to, <laughs> and Christianity has a, a pretty sordid past, complicated to say the very least. Um, but the liberation theologian Fry Beto uh, recently said to understand why Fidel Castro was a popular leader, you have to understand what, what Cuba was like before the revolution. Um, and I think he is right. <laughs> so can you give us some insight on that and, and Christianity's relationship with that situation? Yeah, I, it's... Um, I... I, I I began working in Latin America in the Dominican Republic, and eventually I kind of realized that, you know, it's it's like they were kind of in the same situation in 1959. And you can kind of see two different development paths or two different social paths uh, since then. And um, so you, in both countries, you had a dictator who was uh, installed or backed in one way or another by the United States, uh, Batista and... Um, Cuba and uh, the Trujillo in uh, the Dominican Republic, and uh, uh, the at the time, I guess in, in the 50s, you know, most people were rural. Half the population was illiterate. Um, the uh, there, it didn't feel like there was any um, any class mobility at all. You know, it, it wasn't. There was no notion of uh, hard work will uh, get you somewhere. No, it was uh, 500 years of uh, poverty and exclusion, uh, and especially for for um, racialized folk. You know, the, uh, the the slight majority of Cubans are are, are black, um, so they were sugarcane workers and kind of locked into that. Um, so with the revolution. Um, most of that changed quite quickly. There was a massive literacy campaign. There were uh, ways that the economy tried to be transformed uh, to allow for greater participation, you know, by workers, the trade union movement and so on, um, creating social spaces for, for people to live and work. Um, uh, the strong focus on healthcare and education um, huge advances in that so that now you have uh, the longest uh, life expectancies in, in Latin America, I mean, competitive with Canada ahead of the United States. Um, so it's, uh, so, so, you know, part, part, partly, so, but, but you get a society that's really well-educated. Um, 
what do people do? So you have now uh, young people who are well-educated and can't always find work in the fields that they were trained for um, because the the because of the economic situation. And uh, so sometimes they end up working in hotels or restaurants and so on. And that, that isn't what anybody wants, but it, it is what it is. Um, what would be better would be um, an end to the blockade so that people could travel and work, um, come and go freely. Uh, you know, there, there aren't restrictions. Cuba doesn't impose restrictions on uh, who can come or go, except you know the financial ones being able to afford a plane ticket. But but the the United States imposes conditions on who can come to the United States, um, and and so you know a, a more normal relationship by the United States with its neighbors would 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 actually help uh, uh, normalize things quite considerably. Um, the I th I. Th Cuba has insisted on its sovereignty and its right to choose its own way forward. Um, but we come back to uh, that that rigid U.S. position that uh, the only the only kind of democracy is the the one that it defines as, as democratic. And and so you see these struggles playing out in different places where a government that makes um, or a political option for the poor. Uh, it gets opposed by the United States. And we saw that in Chile in the 70s. We've seen it in Cuba throughout. We see it in Nicaragua, different moments. Uh, we see it in Venezuela these past 20 years. Um, so there's there's different kinds of opposition that comes from the United States, sometimes uh, more lethal than others. Um, so, but at the same time, in other parts of Latin America, people look at Cuba as a sign of hope. You know, Cuba broke free. Maybe we can do that too. Uh, so in the Chilean experience in the early 70s, they tried to do that uh, with an election. So a, a Marxist Socialist Party was elected in 1970. Um, but as you know, the U.S. manipulated divisions in society and, you know, a series of strikes and eventually um, a division inside the armed forces produced a coup in 73 and then 20 years of dictatorship and then 20 years more of uh, you know, parties that won't confront the inequities, the inequality built into the society, so that finally now in Chile, the good news is that they're um, they're rewriting the constitution, and hopefully, they will be able to produce a society that's more democratic, more participatory, um, uh, less focused on maintaining uh, the privileges of the the rich and the powerful. So, you know, like I, I still say that. The revolutionary movements can learn from each other. Um, there's much to be learned from from the from the Cuban experience, um, and uh, and but then also you know like let's look at what's going on in in Chile too too as a sign of hope. Uh, in Peru, there's another opportunity now with a um, a, a fairly progressive uh, uh, politician, a leader of who comes from rural, uh, you know, the peasant. He's a he's a a teacher from a rural area, a, a, a small an area where people are mostly small farmers, um, and he speaks back to the uh, the traditional elites in in uh, in Peru in a way they don't like. But he's he's now the president, and so I, I just you know really hope for a good outcome and then he doesn't um, sell out to the the powers. Um, I don't think he will. I think this is a good time in Peru. So, you know, but the people like him um, are inspired too by what happened in Cuba. And, uh, you know, the political movements that I that I participated in in Mexico, the Dominican Republic and um, other places uh, also are draw much inspiration. They maybe wouldn't take the same options that the that the Cubans took the you know uh, Hugo Chavez in Venezuela was uh, enthusiastically Christian um, and uh, always talked about uh, religion and politics together. Um, that his his faith was part of what inspired his political ac action and uh, um, and he he worked hard to maintain good relations with. Uh, the religious organizations, even when they wouldn't maintain good relationships with him. So I'm, I don't know, we'll see where this all goes, but I, I, um, I, I feel like 
uh, the, the, that experience of um, winning power and then using power for the benefit of the people who've never had access to the power, that has to be a model for the future. Um, so that then the question re arises, well, how far, how far do you go uh, in guaranteeing the, the, the rights of those who've been excluded in the past? And, and I mean, so, so you get a certain kind of individualistic uh, discourse about human rights that ignores the, the collective experience of human rights, which is around economic, social and political rights our rights together as, as uh, poor people, as, as uh, workers, as, as women, as uh, black people, as uh, uh, LGBT people, you know, the, our collectivities, the, the, that our collective rights are, are uh, at least as important, maybe more important than um, individual rights. So, you know, the, the, the rights of a you know, middle-class guy like me uh, would have to be subordinated to the collective good. Yeah, I think that's all really useful as a way to understand the the significance of Cuba, what it symbolizes, what it means, um, and what it does in the world. Uh, I think our, our last question is going to have to be about the blockade uh, and, and talking about that solidarity. But before we get there, um, maybe just to kind of draw out a little bit more about Cuba's significance, and especially for the Christian left, you know, uh, I always think about how the Brazilian Marxist Michael Lowy says uh, liberation theology is the product of two revolutions, the theological one at the Second Vatican Council and the Cuban Revolution. And a lot of uh, liberation theologians have long relationships with Cuba, Fray Beto, Leonardo Boff, uh, Ernesto Cardinal, and, and a ton of others. Um, what has Cuba offered to liberation theology and vice versa? What has Cuba learned uh, from that that flourishing of liberation theology across uh, Latin America? Yeah, well, I, I think in um, in the 60s, immediately, uh, people saw hope in the, the Cuban revolution. So, you know, folks in the Christian-based communities as those were um, developing in, you know, across the region, Mexico, Nicaragua, Chile, Brazil. Um, they saw hope, and the people who were their pastors, the uh, uh, people who cared about what was going on in the marginalized sectors of their own society, saw hope in Cuba. Um, the the, the uh, people with power tended to see Cuba as a threat. So through through the '60s, there were these. Now nothing emerges because of you know one book. So uh, it isn't that the ideas expressed by Gustavo Gutierrez so eloquently in a theology of liberation at the end of the 60s, early 70s. It's, he didn't sit alone and dream that stuff up. <laughs> it was through conversations with others. Uh, and, you know, he, he, he'd be, he would be the first one to say that. He didn't invent liberation theology. It was going on. Uh, he gave a name to it, maybe, or maybe others gave a name to it. He took it. I don't know. It's, but there was these conversations going on all through the the 50s and the 60s, uh, the worker priest movement, um, all these uh, all kind of expressions of options for the poor, like that the gospel somehow was alive amongst the poor and that what, what uh, leaders had to do was listen to what was going on. Uh, I say poor, but, you know, the impoverished, the people who are locked out, the people who are mar uh, marginalized in, in any society. So the, so, you know, it was kind of a, uh, on the one hand, people uh, seeing hope in the Cuban Revolution and other people seeing uh, seeing it as a threat. Uh, so, you know, by the end of the 60s, there were uh, either political movements, uh, student movements, or sometimes guerrilla movements uh, that were trying to get rid of um, author authoritarian regimes or, or um, military regimes in places like Brazil. Uh, uh, and uh, uh, and then later uh, Argentina and, and Chile. Um, so people, uh, so so that so that fed the kind of the revolutionary fervor um, at the same time as it uh, multiplied the repression. And um, so, but so people were always learning uh, from from the experiences. So, so so like that that was all going on. This this competition between people who saw Cuba as, uh, as hope and people who saw Cuba as threat. And, um, and on the positive side, the, the responsible churches saw uh, that the 
the social causes of the revolution were had been correctly identified uh, and that they had to be identified in other places. Um, so like by, by the time you get to the, uh, you know, after Vatican II and the Medellin Conference of, of Bishops in 1968 uh, and the articulation of a, a, an option for the poor and uh, a celebration of the base communities, um, there, there was also, you know, uh, an ethic of uh, reading the signs of the times, a, a method of reading the signs of the times and understanding that um, that the answers from, you know, let's say 1955, the previous uh, conference of bishops meeting, you know, weren't going to be the same in 1968, much less in 1979 when the Pueblo conference happened. And so, you know, all of those things were happening and they, they invented, they, they invented, they showed us a new way of working. Uh, so the liberation theology isn't just about Latin America or about um, economic relations. It's about race relations, about gender relations and all the rest of it. And it's been taken um, and evolved in different settings around the world. Uh, and, and that's that's the maybe the good news of these last 50 years is that we have another way of uh, understanding um, Jesus in our time, understanding uh, the social relationships in our time. Um, and the Cuban revolution has uh, helped inspire uh, many people, and I mean, you know, from from individuals like uh, Camilo Torres, who was a Colombian uh, priest who joined the guerrillas uh, at the end of the 60s and was killed in combat, um, to countless others um, who, who made choices, maybe not always the right choices, but made choices that uh, uh, they hoped would uh, lead towards the liberation of, of um, the poor and the marginalized from every sort of uh, oppression. Well, uh, I think that's a really good way to put that relationship, and uh, I think a man a really inspiring way to put it, actually, too. I think. Um, well, before we close out, I think, uh, like Dean said, we probably do need to talk about the blockade. Um, in response to a lot of the ongoing, um, I don't know, discourse, at least amongst leftists in the United States, um, uh, one thing that it seems like people can agree on is that uh, the U.S. needs to drop its sanctions. I'm sorry. Something that like most leftists can agree on, I guess. <laughs> Clearly, not everybody, uh, but most leftists seem like they can agree on uh, the fact that U.S. the U.S. needs to to drop its sanctions and its end its embargo against Cuba, and um, not just American leftists, but almost all countries in the UN also agree with that uh, idea. Um, even people who are, I think, very critical of the Cuban government are also, um, I don't know, kind of on the same page about dropping the embargo. So uh, give us a little bit of insight on that. I mean, what, what are the effects of the blockade? How, uh, how can Christians or other people uh, contribute to ending it? Yeah, thanks. I, I, um, you know, the, the, block, the blockade is, uh, so people, people, it becomes one of, the, one of the talking points for both sides, if you will. It's, uh, um, yeah. So for people who oppose the Cuban revolution and oppose uh, communism in Cuba, uh, Socialism in Cuba, the people's power in Cuba, people who are opposed to the, those kinds of agendas, um, you know, they think that their sanctions will uh, undermine the revolution or, or help to bring it to an end. And there was a, a guy way back in, uh, where, did I, where did I have the quote here somewhere? Um, there was a very early on in the uh, the revolutionary process. One of the Eisenhower officials wrote a memo saying that you know Fidel Castro is very popular. Uh, the only way to undermine him is to create dissatisfaction amongst the uh, the people so that they will oppose him. And so that's uh, what has gone on ever since. Has been this um, uh, effort to um, uh, this this effort to undermine the uh, uh, the Cuban. Um, revolution by uh, creating dis disenchantment and dis disaffection amongst the people. Um, yeah, this is what this guy said, Lester Mallory in 1960, the majority of Cubans support Castro. The only foreseeable means of alienating internal support is through disenchantment and dis disaffection based on economic dissatisfaction and hardship. And uh, so it's a regime, regime change strategy, but it's failed completely in Cuba. And uh, it fails in North Korea, fails in Venezuela, fails in Iran. Um, and uh, in the Cuban context, 
um, I said before, the you know there there are some alternative ways of getting some goods you know, from China, from Russia, from other parts of Latin America, from Canada, but it does uh, make uh, you know the, the the array of potential places to obtain things like uh, protective equipment for COVID or or syringes right now. Uh, it may, it makes them more expensive and uh, harder to get than they would it would be if they if they if it weren't for the 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 blockade or the sanctions, if you will. Um, unfortunately, President Biden um, uh, announced uh, this week uh, some new sanctions. Uh, this time, they're they're directed at the heads of the uh, what he you know, what he views as the repressive uh, mechanisms, the the police and what have you. And uh, you know, I, 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 again, I don't see that as at all helpful. It's just he's playing this uh, this game that hasn't worked for sixty years. So. What would be more productive uh, would be uh, for for the United States to you know, first of all uh, first of all break the 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 sanctions that made things worse. The Trump uh, imposed 243 different sanctions measures um, or coercive measures, and uh, that would that would be the the first thing. <laughs> and uh, then, then to sort of get back at least to the the uh, situation at the end of Biden's time, uh, uh, President Biden had uh, restored diplomatic relations, which kind of meant the opportunity for more. President uh, Obama, you mean? Sorry. Yeah, you can have uh, different positions, uh, but talk about them. Um, don't impose sanctions. So um, the Cuban position, I think, is is really clear. No foreign interference, respect our sovereignty, respect international law. International law respects the Cuban position. So as for what can be done about it, there's a, a new uh, uh, a new initiative uh, this week called uh, Let Cuba Live. And there's a website, letcubalive.com. Um, and the organizations like uh, Code Pink and others have come together uh, and published an ad in the New York Times that, that, that has uh, you know, hundreds of signatures, and among them are, you know, Noam Chomsky, Jane Fonda, Oliver Stone, you know, other public figures, uh, some religious figures, the head of the uh, National Council of Churches of Christ in the United States. Uh, the U.S. churches, on the whole, have opposed the sanctions and called for an ending of them as recently as January um, this year. And uh, so, so that letcubalive.com is is one space where people can sign on to the declaration and uh, call for an ending of the sanctions. There's no reason. The letter says there's no reason to maintain the Cold War politics that required the U.S. to treat Cuba as an ex existential enemy rather than a neighbor. Um, so the other space I wanted to mention for um, a way to actually engage directly with with Cuba and the Cuban people is is uh, is Pastors for Peace. Um, and Pastors for Peace is a project of a of another uh, network of organizations called IFCO I F C O, and their web website is IFCO News I F C O News dot org. Uh, but if you go into Google and type in Pastors for Peace, you'll find it. So Pastors for Peace began at the um, end of the 80s, uh, led by African-American churches because they saw the need to connect with uh, with Cubans and Cuban churches and Afro-Cubans Afro um, and to break the blockade. Uh, so they organize uh, visits to Cuba, usually via Mexico, sometimes via Canada, by U.S. citizens uh, every year. There's another caravan going this year. Uh, if you're interested in seeing Cuba up close, get in touch with Pastors for Peace, you can go yourself. Um, and, you know, I think that those kinds of initiatives that, that give people uh, real lived experience in Cuba that's different from the the uh, propaganda that comes from the U.S. government and, and its uh, allies um, is just so vital. And I, and I guess the last thing to say about the, the blockade is like there was just a vote at the end of June um, in the United Nations General Assembly, where you know, as has happened for each of the past 30 years, uh, most countries in the world voted to encourage the United States to end the blockade. This time, the vote was 
187 to 2, the two countries that supported the blockade, the United States and Israel. Um, the other 187 included places like Canada, um, all of Europe. <laughs> there were three abstentions. Um, I, and I've forgotten which ones they are. I think uh, Colombia and uh, Brazil were two of them, and the third was one of the East European countries. So it's, um, you know, like the, there's, these sanctions aren't working. They, um, they won't work. Uh, Cubans are proud of what they've been able to accomplish. They have strong allies around the world who, who want to see this experiment surviving and thrive into the future. Um, and continue to be an inspiration for for other countries and uh yeah so i i, I think that's uh that's my hope too and you know the that 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 uh at one point we we talked about uh um working more closely around anti-imperialism and uh and i think cuba is one of those spaces where you see the need to um Look at the way the empire is behaving and call it out. Uh, and uh, and one of the ways of doing that is by by getting to know the blockade and uh, and and its impacts and uh, working uh, for its end. You know, Canada has always practiced this uh, approach to Cuba that they call constructive engagement. Uh, you know, there are things that we can learn, things that we can do, um, things that we can do together. Uh, and that the dialogue and engagement is a better better way forward than uh, confrontation. Thanks, Jim. I think that's a great note to end on. Uh, dialogue is better than confrontation, especially when it comes to Cuba. Uh, if people want to find what you're up to now or, or follow your writing, anything that you want to plug here at the very end before we uh, sign off? Yeah, I think um, I, I, uh, I'm doing some writing now. It's a little... Uh, unsure where it's going to go. And, and I, I, I have a blog site uh, called unwrappingdevelopment.ca, unwrappingdevelopment.ca altogether like that. And uh, it's, but I haven't been writing there the past uh, couple of months, I think just because I got busy doing other things and thinking about other things, but I'll get back to it. Uh, and um, it, what I've been writing about has been uh, the the mining issues in in Latin America, the global sanctions, like the, the like there are sanctions. There's the blockade against Cuba, but there are economic sanctions against other places too. So uh, Venezuela, Iran, North Korea, and so on. And it was partly inspired by by some of the work I was doing at the United Church. Uh, I've been working with Kairos around, uh, Kairos is the Canadian Ecumenical Justice Coalition. I'm writing some pieces for them around uh, debt, around access to vaccines, and then lately, and this hasn't appeared yet, but it's around mining and what we learned from all the fights over um, resource extraction and mining in Latin America and how that can shape some of our actions into the future. So a whole bunch of stuff perking, but uh, not anything recent that... Uh, uh, that's out there, except for the you know the blog, and I will get back to writing on writing for that. And and now that we've talked about Cuba, maybe you've inspired me to write something about Cuba. <laughs> yeah, well, it is a great blog. I can say, as a, a reader of it, I encourage other folks to read it too. And we'll look forward to uh, what else you have on the horizon, and we'll we'll be sure to share that through our channels. Uh, thanks again, Jim, for coming on the show. I know this will not be the last time. <laughs> We're always happy to hear a little bit more about your experience, your perspective, and uh, yeah, grateful for your work in. The Christian Solidarity Movement. Well, thank you. It's always a joy to talk with you guys, and I, I wish you all the best. Thanks for listening to the Magnificast. If you like what you heard, you can support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash the Magnificast. If you support us there, you get kind of cool things like uh, maybe a sticker or maybe another sticker or uh, an invite to our Discord channel or a cool behind-the-paywall, super-exclusive um, alternate reality game podcast where Dean and I uh, do talk about current events, but also kind of pretend we have a youth group called The Lock-In. It's very fun. Um, if you if you miss all of the good Reddit goofs we used to do in some of the earlier episodes, that's the place you need to be to hear all those um, weird <laughs> questions. Each episode is about 30 minutes, uh, and I've heard that's exactly the right amount of time for a podcast to be. So if you're not into our longer, our longer regular podcast, that's one you could go check out. <laughs> if you haven't made it this far past an hour, that's the one you should check out for sure. Yeah. So who, who am I even talking to in this in this weird <laughs> this weird sales pitch? Um, all right. Our intro music is by Mario Armstrong. Our outro music is by The Illogical Spoon. And uh, we'll see you next week.
get up for church in the morning, church in the morning, souls alive. Heaven come to earth and there won't be no church. We'll meet down by the riverside. There we'll swim with all creation. Never get tired, never bored. Don't worry, someday there'll be no dam between us and our Lord. Jackson, keep your hoods up, you keep your hoods up, and you stay up late. Jackson, you keep your hoods up, well you keep your hoods up, and you stay up late. Oh, don't mind, a cold night, but we might mind if you leave too soon. So come on now, it's still early, at least I would else, 